If you would, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 16. If you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He can be seated. Right there? Sound okay? So today we're going to take a look at Acts 17, verses 16 and 17, and it'll probably be like a two-part series. We're going to look at a couple questions today, and then later we'll look at what Paul preached in Athens, but um, as we focus on these, um, I just had a couple questions in mind while looking at these verses. What provoked Paul, and then... What motivated Paul to preach Jesus and the resurrection? So before we get focused on those, I want to get some context of where we're at here in Acts 17. And we see Paul arrive in Athens here in Acts 17, verse 16. And we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, and Greg has been preaching through that. And while doing so, he has been taking us through some of Paul's experiences, including Paul's conversion in Acts, Paul's mission of preaching the gospel, and the persecutions against Paul in the book of Acts. Greg has been kind of going in and out as we've been looking at Thessalonians, which has been great and wonderful. And Paul in the book of Acts, leading up to the church being planted in Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, And on last time, Greg looked at Paul's sufferings as an apostle for the sake of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 33. And Greg stated, when looking at these sufferings, we don't know the time and the date for all of Paul's sufferings, but Luke records some of them for us in the book of Acts. And we can go ahead and read that real quick, 2 Corinthians 11, just to get a fresh reminder So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, and I'll start here. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, 
and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and am I not indignant? So Paul gives us this list of his sufferings. And so we should think about that as we think about Paul here in Athens as well, in Acts 17. And I'll just give you kind of a quick overview of some of this. So let's take a quick overview of the, just the history recorded in Acts for more context. And in Acts 7 and 8, we see Paul as a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 9, we see the conversion and the baptism of Paul and the fruit of Paul's conversion as Paul starts proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in Damascus. There the Jews plotted to kill Paul, and Paul had to escape by being lowered in a basket by the disciples. Then Paul goes on to Jerusalem and began preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and the Hellenists were seeking to kill Paul. Then Paul was sent to Tarsus in Acts 11. We see that Barnabas, he brings Paul to Antioch to teach the church there, and then the Antioch church sends Paul and Barnabas to take relief to the brothers in Judea. And in Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent on their first missionary journey. Throughout these missionary journeys, Paul will see many people converted to Christianity by the power of God's gospel. And he will take part in planting many churches throughout all these regions. Along the way, we see the Jews following and persecuting Paul and Barnabas to the point in Acts 14, 19, it says here, but when the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But Paul rose up, and they continued on their mission. In Acts 15, we see Paul and Barnabas arrive at the Jerusalem council and then go back to Antioch, eventually separate, and Paul takes Silas on his second missionary journey. In Acts 16, we see Timothy join Paul and Silas on their mission, Then Paul receives the call to Macedonia. And they travel to Philippi, where we see the conversion of Lydia and her household. Then Paul commands a spirit to come out of a slave girl, and her owners seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, where a crowd joined in on attacking them, and eventually the magistrates tore the garments off Paul and Silas, beat them with rods, and threw them into prison. And here we see the Philippian jailer and his household converted. And then in Acts 17, Paul and Silas go on their way to Thessalonica, where the Jews helped to form a mob and attack the house of Jason, looking for Paul and Silas. And now I'll just read 
Acts 17, 10 through 15, but that's kind of where Greg left off last time. And then 10 through 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So now that we've kind of seen that context, and we we see Paul alone in in Athens, and I just read you those two verses, 16 and 17, and I want to take you into depth into these verses. I want to to ask two questions for us, and I want to answer those as good as I can. And by answering these questions, I hope, by God's grace, it will influence our church, our little tiny church, and this culture of secular religion, idolatry, whatever you want to call it. How will it influence us? I hope it will influence us as a church, and, and it should motivate us to, to take action. And when I say take action, I mean to preach the gospel and witness to the people that we live amongst. So question one, why was Paul... Why was his spirit provoked within him in verse 16? So that'll be the first question we look at. And what motivated Paul to take action and preach the gospel in Athens in verse 17? And just off the top of your head, you're probably thinking, well, I mean, of course. He preaches the gospel everywhere he goes. But we're going to take a little in-depth look at Athens and just see why... Paul may not have wanted in his his old life, he wouldn't have shared the gospel in Athens. And and we'll take a look at this. So in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul is here. He's all alone. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. And he looks upon this city and he sees that it is full of idols, Athens. And I'll give you a description of Athens. This is from Linsky. It's good. It's, it's a little lengthy, but it's a good description of Athens at the time Paul was there. Athens, the eye of Greece, the mother of arts and eloquence, still held this position in the Greek world at the time of Paul's visit to this city. It was filled with great memories of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Sophocles, and Euripides, and Perseus, and of Demethesenes. 
In its agora, Socrates had walked with his pupils. Here was the Academy of Plato, the Lycinium of Aristotle, the Porch of Zeno, the Garden of Epicurus, the Pantheon, the most beautiful of temples, crowned the Acropolis. Standing on its glorious height, the writer saw pages and pages of ancient history of Greece and Athens spread out as on a map. The view is unforgettable. At one time, Athens dominated all the great cities around the Mediterranean that are located in Asia and Europe. These political glories had taken wing. It was now only a, providential, a provincial city in the province of Achaia with Corinth as its capital. This province had been restored to the Senate by Claudius in AD 44 and was thus governed by a proconsul. This was a city that was entirely different from any Paul had ever visited or was to visit. It is often described as a university town that was similar to those cities of our day that have great universities located in their midst. But this conception is misleading in more ways than one. It was the world center of art, but an art that was devoted chiefly to the idolatries of Greek mythology. Its great attraction today is the ruined Parentheon with the Erechtheion on the far left and two amphitheaters far below on the right. Sculpture, Greek architecture, Greek theaters, schools of philosophies, literates of all kinds, all steeped in Greek paganism. This was Athens as Paul saw it in AD 52. This is what the pagan Lucian has in mind. When I first came to Athens, I was astonished and delighted to see all the glory of the city. Pagan writers remark regarding the plethora of temples and statues. Petronius, he remarks that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. That's how many images and idols were in Athens. In his fine description, Pausanias states that Athens had more images than all Greece put together. Xenophon calls Athens one great altar, one great offering to the gods. Levi writes, In Athens are to be seen images of gods and men of all descriptions and made of all materials. In the Agora, every god of the Olympus found a place. Every public building was at the same time a sanctuary that was dedicated to one or two more gods. Besides the ordinary gods, there were defecations of fame, modesty, energy, persuasion. So everything in this city was dedicated to a god. It seems like where we live today. So he saw that the city was full of idols. And so I just read to you this long but good description of Athens at the time Paul had arrived. But contrast that to the description that Luke writes as Paul sees the city. So Paul doesn't describe this huge city through Paul's eyes. Luke describes it. He says, Paul saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, he saw Athens through the lens of a biblical worldview. 
He didn't see it as just some great beauty that we must say this is great. He saw it as people enslaved and in bondage to idols that they created with their own hands. I'll read from Isaiah 44, verse 9. And this is probably what might have came to mind in Paul's mind as he was walking through Adams or through Athens, sorry. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with the planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man. To dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. You are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is what happens when you make an idol and worship it. And this is what the people in Athens are doing. And Paul sees through it clearly. He's not impressed by all this stuff that man had built with their hands, even though as Christians we're supposed to build for the glory of God. But this is all stuff dedicated to idols. And John Stott, he gives a a good definition of what full of idols means in the Greek when he writes, the adjective Luke uses, and this is the Greek term, full of idols, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament and has not been found in any other Greek literature. Although most English versions render it full of idols, The idea conveyed seems to be that the city was under them. We might say that it was smothered with idols or swamped by them. 
And we might say that you, you had no free space there where you did not have to worship one of these idols or bow down to it. If you worked in a building that was dedicated to those idols, you had to worship those idols. Right? If you, anywhere in the city, you were enslaved to these idols, even if they weren't your own, even if you didn't make them with your own hands. So Paul sees the people in the city worshiping and enslaved or under the yoke of idols and false gods. So in Acts 17, 16, it says his spirit was provoked within him. And Paul here is describing what he felt as he saw Athens. In some translations, they say he was greatly distressed. Uh, John Stott, he, he provides a long definition of what, what this provoked within him means in the Greek. And I won't read it for the sake of time, but the basic translation is that provoked here in the Greek, provoked within him, is to be painfully jealous in a righteous way for the name of God. That's what Paul felt. Righteous jealousy for the name of God. Painful jealousy. My God is not being glorified. So that's the answer to question one. The people in Athens were not giving glory to the one living and true God alone. Right? Isaiah 42, 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. That's what provoked Paul. And I'll read to you Romans 1, verse... uh, 18 through 23. Maybe Paul had this in his mind when he was writing Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what it looks like to be enslaved to these idols. I think that's what Paul saw when he walked into Athens. He's all alone and he's walking through this city and he sees all these false gods and the people worshiping them. So in Acts 17, 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's response to his spirit being provoked within him was to take action and preach the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace. 
And right there it says he reasoned with them, but we know later on in Acts and throughout Acts, what does he do when he's reasoning with people? He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's Paul's M.O. Everywhere he goes. Preaches Jesus and the resurrection. And we'll look at that more in depth next time. But So question two, what, what motivated Paul to take action and preach the gospel in Athens? And I'm going to give you two answers to what motivated Paul to preach the gospel in Athens. And the first one is short. And I'm going to give this short answer, and it's, I believe it's correctly taught in most Reformed churches. So we won't go over it too much, but Paul wanted God to be glorified, and he wanted Jesus to have the fullness of his reward in Athens and throughout the world. That's Paul's mission. And I believe that's what motivates a lot of us. But there's, there's something more to that that motivated Paul. And we're going to spend more time on this. This is the second answer. And this is what I think, I know I've missed it. Many times when sharing the gospel with people. But Paul was motivated by love. Love of God and love of people. Or you can say love of neighbor. Or you can simply say the Ten Commandments. That's what motivated Paul, to love God and to love people. So remember who Paul was before he was saved by God's grace through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before Paul was given the free gift of the Holy Spirit... So before he was born again and granted repentance and faith by God, he was a very religious man. He was very educated. He was a man who was so religious that he would capture Christians because they were enemies of Judaism. He was a man who would imprison them. He would watch them be stoned to death while thinking he was doing the work of God. Paul was a Pharisee. And Paul most likely taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We see Jesus preach against that in Matthew 5, 43. When he preaches to love your enemies, he says, you've heard it said. Where would the people have heard it said from the Pharisees and the scribes? You shall love your neighbor, you shall hate your enemy. And what's Jesus do? He preaches about the good Samaritan, a man far off from them. And this would have been Paul. Before he was converted, he would have saw the people in Athens as enemies. He would have been praying the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms against these people. But then he's born again. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy, Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So before Paul was born again, he was a lover of himself, as all of us were outside of Christ. He truly didn't love God. He truly did not love his neighbor, because anybody who he decided was not his neighbor became his enemy. 
right? Do we have that problem sometimes? Possibly. We make little excuses on why they're our enemy and why they're not our neighbor. So how can I say that Paul was motivated to preach the gospel by love? And I'll just give you a biblical definition from Vodi Bauckham. He says, the biblical definition for love, that biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by an emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So what's the object? Loving God and loving people. And now Paul has this biblical love for both God and the people God sends them to. And to look at that, we'll take a... I want to read to you 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Just so we get an idea of what biblical love looks like as a Christian, right? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. And if we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom, has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And my focus there is, I just told you, the Ten Commandments are what drives him. We can see that God loves Paul, and Paul loves God. Paul loves Jesus Christ and obeys him, and is in Athens, following that commandment, go and make disciples. 
right? And we've been seeing, as Greg has been preaching in Thessalonians, when he makes the disciples, he stays with them, he prays for them, he cares for them to the end, as we were talking about before this message. This is a thing that's going to be a fellowship between Paul and whoever believes for all eternity. So I've told you that it's love that motivate him. Paul being regenerated, justified, adopted, and being sanctified by God's grace through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he now biblically loves God and people. And again, I say Paul was motivated by love. Now those verses I I just read didn't prove that, but let's look at a few more verses here. So turn to Philippians, and you guys know this verse, but... Chapter 1, verse 12, and I'll just read down through verse 16. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. It's love that drives them to preach the gospel. Let's look at another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul's own writing, so we can say Paul was motivated by love to preach the gospel. Biblical love, not this culture's love. Love is love. Love is whatever you are. Love is whatever you think you might be. Biblical love. First or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, and I'll read through 21, because this is what an ambassador of Christ is. This is what a witness for God looks like. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are ambassadors for Christ. We are sent out to tell the world, be reconciled to God. And what controls us, right right at the beginning, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. That's what Paul says. This is his motivation. 
So the question for our little tiny church here, is that what motivates us? Biblical love. And I said, biblical love by Vodi Bauckham is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Is that object the people in this city, the people around us, the people that repel us? Do we want them to be reconciled to God? I wrote here, in the flesh we love what we think is beautiful. We love what attracts us. We do not love what repels us. We love people who love us back. And we do not love our enemies. In the flesh, we do not. And even in the church, we sin. And we're sinned against. And we don't love one another. And we see disunity just like the Corinthian church. So are we motivated by love to preach the gospel in our present time and place to a people group that worship and are enslaved to many false gods and idols? Because that's what, we're amongst those people every day. We're in a gym on Sundays, they worship, right? They're, they're worshiping up there. They're worshiping their bodies. They're trying to live longer. They worship life. They worship self. And we may think, well, we're in here worshiping God. We must be better. Throughout the day, throughout the week, we see people and we think, man, they worship their bodies so much that they, they can't even, they don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. Do we leave them alone? The only way they can be healed is if they're reconciled to God, right? What motivates us to share that with them? It's got to be love. Biblical love, true love. Be reconciled to God, be healed. Don't be blind, don't be deaf. Come out of the darkness, into the light. Jesus does that through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And he will return. He will judge you. But with the true love of God, you don't have to fear that punishment of judgment, right? We can give that good news to people. So what motivates us? I mean, if it's just for the glory of God, we can just go out there and hold a sign and say, be reconciled to God. But if it, if it comes from love, we can say, come, be with us. Come to my house, have a meal. I want to tell you the truth. And I don't just want to tell you the truth, have you reconciled to God and never see you again. I want you to come into the church. I want to worship with you. I want to know you. I want to build you up. I want to see you make it to the end as the minister in Thessalonians wants to see. I want to see you reconciled to God on that day of glory. 
to see you fade. I don't want to see you fall from the faith. We want to snatch you from the fire if that looks like what's happening, right? So let's think about who we were before God saved us, if he has saved you, if he has not saved you. Be reconciled to God today. Repent and believe the gospel. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Be baptized. Get the free gift of the Holy Spirit that he sends from heaven as he sits at the right hand of his Father. Turn to Romans 5, if you would, and we'll just end right here. Just thought it'd be a good idea to see what God does with his enemies, right? Our enemies in our culture today, we cancel them, right? We can cancel them off Facebook. We can block their texts, their emails. We don't even have to think about them anymore, right? Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and the endurance produces character, and the character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if you are in Christ today, you were previously weak, helpless to save yourself. You were ungodly. You had no fear of God. You were a sinner, enslaved, and loving every sinful thing that you could. And you were an enemy of God. But you have been reconciled to God if you are in Christ today. But if you are not, you are still all of those. That's your identity. And our mission is to plead with people to be reconciled. Amen.